He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, please uh, anoint and bless my words to be true and useful in accord with your scriptures for the strengthening of our faith and our hope in you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. One of the elements of the... Oh, the door won't close? Oh, sorry. Oh, that's okay. No worries. Sorry. sorry. I just want to throw something I'd fallen over or something. Um, uh, one of the thematic elements that really stuck out to me from the, today's gospel passage, and I wonder if it did to you, was the recurrence of this word fire in the last several verses of the gospel. It gets invoked three times in as many verses. Fire for every tree that does not bear good fruit. Fire that Jesus is going to baptize with, prophesied by John and then fire for the chaff that's separated from the wheat. And it's these three fires that I want to uh, examine and unpack a bit for us this morning. I'm going to go in reverse order, kind of working back up that sequence of the gospel. So the, the, um, the last one, the third, is perhaps the easiest to interpret, this image of chaff, because we get a word that Jesus then picks up on in his own preaching when he describes the eternity of torment for those who fundamentally and finally reject Christ Jesus as hell, which he then describes in Mark 9 as unquenchable fire. And that's that same word we get here prophesied by John, unquenchable. So one of the meanings of the fire, I think the meaning of this third instance of fire is plain. Um, It's the ultimate and final judgment. You know, when we think about Advent, Christ coming to judge the world, What is the final negative judgment for those who've rejected Christ finally and ultimately? And I keep adding those modifiers because as long as someone's breathing, there's hope that they might accept Christ and turn from whatever previous rejections there may have been. That the entirety, including the final seconds of one's life, including that moment before the soul finally separates from the body and we come before our maker, there's hope. Finally, but for those who finally and ultimately do reject Christ, the images of chaff being burned up in an unquenchable fire. Okay, the second fire that John prophesies that Jesus will baptize with, the Holy Spirit and fire. This is really interesting, right? Because the word baptism um, implies water. Prior to Christianity and John the Baptist's ministry, um, the word baptism had a sort of non-religious meaning. When you did the dishes... And if you were speaking in Greek, you would say, well, I'm just baptizing the dishes. Like, I'm dipping them to cleanse them. It was an ordinary word, which then John the Baptist and Jesus take and give us this profound sacrament and picture of our life in Christ, right? Dipped and washed, like a dish. Although, would we were as easy to clean uh, as a dish. The, um, so, this image of baptism necessarily is connected to water, and yet we have its very opposite element, fire, baptized with fire. It's a paradox right away as John says it. They would have caught it as surprising and paradoxical in his day. And we know, um, we see Jesus actually hearken back to this prophecy of John in Acts chapter 1, just um, in the, among the very last words Jesus says before his ascension. 
chapter, chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says, John baptized with water, but you, and he's speaking to the, um, the sort of apostles who stuck with the, and disciples who stuck with him, the 120, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he's, of course, referring to what instance? Pentecost, right. And what shape does the Holy Spirit take in that moment? Tongues of fire. That's the fulfillment. And so one of the sort of singular privileges of those first disciples of Christ and of the apostles is that they were baptized directly from heaven, right? Fire, the Holy Spirit fell and came and indwelt their souls for an eternity of salvation. That Jesus didn't baptize them with his mortal hands. He baptized them with his immortal hands from heaven as he sent his Holy Spirit. But he tells the disciples, the apostles, Go therefore into all nations, baptizing. So all Christians since, we've been baptized by some other Christian that dipped us. But the first were baptized directly from heaven. And the image of fire is significant because it gives us the, you know, these are all, as so many um, pictures, metaphors, if you will, but stronger than metaphors, condescending to the way that we can only understand things according to our own terms. We are given so many pictures of the way in which God is dealing with us and working out our salvation and our rescue. And so one image is water and that of being, you know, having dirt washed away. But it's almost like, you know, dirt sits on the surface, right? And, and washes away down the surface. Sin lies deeper than that. It's not just on wood that it were just on the surface. And so God's given us this other image of what he does when his Holy Spirit comes to us, when we are baptized and have faith in him. That it's also actually like fire which burns out the dirt from the inside. I've, I've um, actually, Stephen's son is getting into like metallurgy and metalsmithing, um, you know, and I've heard that you knock, you put, uh, you put ore in the fire and it knocks away the bits of rock and leaves the gold, right? That's the refiner's process, an image used recurringly in the scriptures. So the image of fire is showing us that our problem before him isn't just sitting on the surface that water could take away in, in a word picture. We actually need to go into fire to have all of the lumpen sin and the stain of original sin from Adam, the stain of our own sins. If anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself, right? It's deep in us, and it takes fire to burn it out. Um, those of you who've ever um, been to my house for a bonfire, some of you have, know that I'm not a very good fire maker. <laughs> I'm really bad. Um, and because I'm not very thorough, I'm always stuck with this like stubborn log. I didn't get it hot enough. I put too big a log on too early, and it's like, Come on, burn. And this actually gives for me a picture of the sort of life of sanctification in Christ, that our flesh is the stubborn log. And the fire of the Holy Spirit poured into our lives at baptism is slowly burning away at what needs to be burned away so that what's left is the gold that he himself has made and redeemed in us. Fire has a consuming quality. So we've done the fire that, um, we looked at the fire that burns the chaff, the fire of, of baptism, and the first fire that Jesus mentioned, that John the Baptist mentions, the fire that burns up the trees that do not bear good fruit. And this, I think, is uh, a bit more difficult to interpret. I actually think there's at least two meanings within it. Um, the first, I think, is that for those who say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, 
but never in their actual lived life, the life out of their heart, have repentance. So actually, to pray to God, God, I'm sorry for my sins. Who never do that sort of act, those deeds of faith that manifest in prayer and repentance, right? John the Baptist's own preaching, fruit in keeping with repentance. Together with the many parables Jesus tells about Judgment Day, right? Many will come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? Ah, I didn't know you. Lord, when, when were you sick and I didn't visit you? Right? Um, the, for those who, can, as use the words of the prophets, for whom Christ is on the lips, but their heart is very far from him, the end result of their situation is the same as the chaff, that it is a fire that burns up. But I think this is, doesn't exhaust the meaning of this, this fire that's taught. Because one of the things that, and if you do like a keyword search, if you have a Bible lexicon and look at the word fire, it's a very profound, um, I hate to say the word motif because that sounds kind of literary, but like it's a profound <laughs> recurring feature in New Testament teaching. I believe it also signifies the fire through which we are presently all passing and also will continue to pass through as we approach the nearer presence of God when we die. Two teachings suggest this. Um, again, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, everyone, and he means everyone, will be salted with fire. And this is, that's a kind of cryptic saying. It's not immediately clear how to interpret that. I think what the Spirit gives us an unpacking in 1 Corinthians 3, when it talks about the works that we do on Judgment Day, some are made of stubble. Right? Again, using that image of chaff. And it, burned up, and it concludes that even though some of the works will be burned up, he himself will be saved but only as through fire. And I think, again, this is an image of refining fire. Here's what I, an interpretation I think this means. The parts of our life, which in this life, before we die, that we haven't yielded to the Holy Spirit with repentance. I think when we come into the near presence of God, when we cross the threshold of death, that there's, as it were, like a fire that burns that last of the dross away as we come into his nearer presence. I think that's the biblical truth that then so quickly has spun out in church history into these um, misshapen ideas of purgatory, right, that the Roman Catholics generally teach. Um, there's a tiny kernel, and I think it's what I just laid out, which then gets warped in visions of purgatory. Okay, this brings actually to uh, the final point I'd like to make, that um, these three different fires we've looked at most probably are actually just one and the same fire. They're just one and the same fire. It's the fire that's described in Psalm 50, verse 3, before God is a consuming fire. A fire pours forth from before his throne. That's a different psalm. I think it's the same fire in all cases. And interestingly, I'm not, I'm not just sort of winging this. <laughs> it was a great debate for, for many decades in the middle of the 15th century about like the, how many fires are there and are they created or uncreated. So my best understanding of what the best theologians of that era wrought out, if you're really interested, search the Council of Florence. But that the, what the Bible describes as fire is an earthly picture of a spiritual reality, which is the purity of God's glory that he's so radiant and pure and glorious that it has the quality of fire. So it's the same fire which is placed into your life 
when you have faith in Christ and are baptized into him. And it's that same glory that is then purifying, that through a lifetime of his work in us is burning up the dirt on the inside. And it's actually also that same glory that is to those who've rejected God, who've rejected the Father because they've rejected the Son, Jesus Christ. It's that same glory that's experienced as torment of hell. Now, um, I, I don't know if you know, but I always um, practice, I always read through my sermons to Carrie before I preach them because she has such a faithful heart and a good ear for like what sticks out. It's like, that needs more explanation. And this was the point she's like, you might want to unpack, explain, add some explanation to this. So I will. Um, we believe confessionally that God is omnipresent. And not just, and that the world that is created, and we're looking at this in the angel class, right? Space and time, and as the physicists say, apparently 11 dimensions. Or at least that's what I was saying 10 years ago, last time I saw it. 26. 26 of So, however many dimensions there are, God is beyond and bigger than all of them. He made them all, right? So, there's nowhere in the cosmos or anywhere that we can imagine where God is not already bigger than that space. And so the problem that sort of was posed in the 15th century was the fire of punishment that Jesus describes in awful terms. Is it something that is a created fire, like God's making a fire over here for those who have been punished? Or is it merely the experience of those who've rejected Christ of his glory, that his glory itself is a cause of torment? And that's what the better theologians of that debate unpacked that it harmonizes more clearly with his character of his love for us that he has this radiating powerful glory because it's not just emanating from him I think the sort of the bottom line of this truth of the fire comes to us from Hebrews 10 not only is the fire before him and we see in Revelation you know, fire from the eyes of Christ fire from the word of Christ and Hebrews 10 says our God is a consuming fire and anytime the Bible says God is something, that's a bedrock, right? God is love. God is light. Our God is a consuming fire. And you see, these images actually are describing the self-same reality, that God who is actually um, simple in himself, that the same quality of himself that is love in which he would allow his own son to experience the immolating quality of this fire, the wrath of his justice on the cross when he died for us. It's one and the same love that would, wants to purify us, to save us from like the sins within that are dragging us down. and wants to cleanse us so that we are able to stand and enjoy his glory forever. And it's that same glory that when someone obstinately rejects Christ Jesus, that glory is painful to them. That's the description, I believe, of putting all the biblical passage together. How God is loved, how he's fire, how the miserable can suffer, and yet the same fire. And if you think about fire, it has the same quality in natural life, right? Fire in the fireplace, when the power's out, oh, what a lifesaver. It's actually warming your body. But falling into a bonfire, my brother did this when he was a kid. He fell in it, it burned his whole ankle. It was terrible, like second degree burns. Fire misplaced, fire received in the wrong way. The same fire is, is painful and damaging. 
as a picture, I think, of the same fire of God's glory for those who have heeded the message of John the Baptist and Jesus and have repented and said, Lord, I recognize I am a sinner. There is all this dross in me that I need you to burn up. The fire is warmth and transformation. But for the one who says, no, 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 I don't want any of that, the fire is painful. My heart in bringing all this uh, unpacking of fire before us is I think I find in my heart and in generally the teaching else I've also seen, heard and seen, we default as Christians underestimate the awfulness of God's glory. I mean, full of awe, but with, a, with an undertone of terror. And one of the great saints of the 19th century church, I think really kind of captured the spirit that getting a glimpse of God's glory, especially in the prophets and in the apocalypse and revelation, there's sort of this instinct of like, oh my gosh, it's too much, I need to turn away. But the fate of turning away is so much infinitely worse than having to like come before God's presence. Well, then God, I cast myself into your, into your judgment. I stand in your fire, deal with me as you will. That's the Christian response. But it's caught between this tension of, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming. It's always, I've always been struck in Hebrews when it says, um, and I'm going to do a terrible paraphrase, but something about like, don't be timid to come before the presence of God. But why would you feel timid? I've always thought, of, well, why would you feel timid? God is so kind, and he is so kind. But it's because I don't grip in my imagination how fire-like his glory is that I don't feel instinctive timidity. I don't need that encouragement to not be timid. But I think when we fully get the full witness of Scripture about God's glory, we'll feel a bit of timidity, which then the message of the gospel emboldens us to be brave about, Right? Okay, God, you, your glory is terrible. That's not how we use that word anymore. I read too many old books. <laughs> your glory is um, awe-inspiring and fearsome. Fearsome, that's the word I'm looking for. Your glory is fearsome. But because by faith I believe that you will save me, as it says in the prophet of Isaiah, um, you will guide me through the fire. I'm going to come to you with my whole life, with my whole heart, with repentance with casting myself, pleading for mercy on your judgment and trusting your judgment. And I have confidence, that's it, I have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. That's the Hebrews passage. Um, And sort of finding that balance of trusting without a doubt that it is God's will to save us through that fire and not to damn us. He came not to judge the world, but to save it but not standing there in a place of sort of uh, over-presumption of like, oh, this is easy being here. It's like, no, this is a consuming fire that we are in the midst of. For years, I've been trying to find like an asbestos metaphor, but I can't find one. All I know is that Christ saves us through the fire, not apart from the fire. Amen.